And I'm going to end with just verse 21 this week uh, in the interest of time. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, uh, saying, we may, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you are saying some uh, strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray now that you would add your blessing uh, both to the reading and now the preaching of your holy word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are going to be looking at the whole issue of apologetics. Uh, That is probably a new word to many of you. Apologetics is the study of how to defend the faith. In other words, apologetics is, is the study of how to persuade someone of the Christian faith. Specifically, we will be looking at how to persuade someone um, of the Christian faith in a non-Christian culture. When Paul came to when Paul came to Athens, he was in a decidedly non-Christian culture. The city, as it says in verse 16, was full of idols. And as I pointed out last Sunday, a Roman writer who was passing through Athens 2,000 years ago, about the same time that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was there, said it is easier to find a statue to a god than it was to find a real living person. Uh, Athens was the home to the Parthenon, and it was the center of Greek mythology. Furthermore, Athens was the center of Greek philosophy. 400 years before Paul came to Athens, Socrates, you remember Socrates, uh, he was sentenced to death in Athens. He was sentenced to death because he did not sufficiently believe in the... um, in the reality um, or the existence of the gods. And so he was sentenced to death. He chose to drink the hemlock. And uh, so he died. Uh, There was also, during this time that Paul was preaching, uh, Epicureanism and Stoicism. They, in fact, had risen in popularity. And so we see in, um, in our text, in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also were there and were conversing with Paul. Um, both of these philosophies, uh, Epicurean philosophy and Stoic philosophy, they were both very materialistic uh, philosophies. The Epicureans believed that the highest good was the pursuit of pleasure. 
Um, it might, might be a little unfair for me to make this comparison, but I'll do it anyway. The Epicureans were the MTV crowd of their generation. Um, the Stoics, on the other hand, were more reserved in their philosophy. Uh, for Stoics, the highest good was living in harmony with nature. And if you were in harmony with nature, then nothing bad could happen to you. And so if you have pain or some bad circumstance happens in your life, you should overlook it, ignore the pain and the hardship. And so when someone is um, being um, steadfast and, and unmoving, uh, almost unemotional in the face of some type of pain or or uh, bad circumstance, we say that they have they, that they are stoic uh, because of the stoic philosophers. The stoics of our day would be the like the New Agers or people like Shirley MacLaine. I would imagine this culture or this culture. Um, this is the culture. That's what I'm trying to spit out. This is the culture into which Paul had stepped. So how should he go about persuading this muddled culture with its competing uh, ideas that range from superstitious idolatry to materialistic philosophy? How should he go about persuading this vast and, and muddled group of people with all these competing ideas that Christianity is true? Paul's approach will help us better determine our own theory, or better yet, our own theology of apologetics. Some people say that uh, we should find out what persuades modern man and make that our starting point uh, for seeking to persuade people to the Christian faith. Um, my view is that allowing modern man to determine our starting point will affect our entire message. I would not recommend it. In fact, uh, John Murray, theologian that lived earlier in the 20th century, uh, said that starting with modern man and what appeals to modern man and then forming our theology to make it palatable uh, to them is the capital sin of our generation because it has gutted the Christian gospel of, of its real message. Uh, churches that use this method are trying to make the church as much like society as possible. And so people will tell me all the time that they, they like to worship in our church uh, simply because they feel like they've actually come to church rather than going to the, uh, what feels like the mall on Sunday morning or something like that. Of course, many others tell me that our worship is too old-fashioned and boring, so I guess it cuts both ways. Others attempt to persuade modern man by finding a starting point on uh, ground that is not specifically Christian or non-Christian. And this common ground, they say, is the common ground of logic. And their reasoning is that everybody can agree that 2 plus 2 equals 4, or everyone can accept the, the theory of non uh, or the law of non-contradiction, which says, and this is kind of technical, A cannot be A and non-A at the same time in the same relationship. 
but it's really the basis of of logic. Um, this theory of non-contradiction. And so they try and argue for the existence of God using logic as a form of pre-evangelism. Typically they'll use arguments such as uh, God is the first mover. In other words, uh, nothing would be in motion without God. Or God is the first cause. We wouldn't be here. Nothing would be here if God was not here causing, uh, it was not the first cause. Um, There are other arguments like this. Uh, Another one would be God is the intelligent designer. You can discern intelligence. Uh, You can discern order in our creation. And if there is order, uh, then there must be something that is given order to our creation. There must be an intelligent designer. Surely everyone's heard of the, the watchmaker theory. If you um, were a native who had not learned any or not met anybody um, on a deserted island and you walked along and you found a watch, you could infer from that watch that it was too intricate, intricately designed to... Um, to be an accident and you infer that there must have been someone who is intelligent who made it and so the argument goes. Um, These proofs are persuasive as far as they go. They go a long way, in fact, toward proving logically that there is a supreme being or some supreme beings in the plural. Uh, in fact, I would say you have to be irrational to deny that these, these proofs have merit. However, they do not, they cannot conclusively prove the existence of the God of the Bible. Plus, um, I don't think logic is a morally neutral um, Uh, discipline anyway. I think logic, we have logic because God created logic. But the biggest problem that I have with both of these views is that we do not find these methods, starting with modern man or starting with contemporary man um, for Paul 2,000 years ago, or starting with logic. We don't find these these methods being employed in the Bible. In other words, I believe that the Bible should tell us how to do apologetics. The Bible is our guide for how to persuade human beings, whether they be ancient human beings 2,000 years ago uh, during Paul's day, or contemporary human beings being people who are living now. Uh, I think the Bible is our guide for how to persuade people. So I ask again, how did the apostle persuade men for the Christian faith? And by extension, how does the Bible persuade men for the Christian faith in our own day and age? Let's look at our text again. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and he also reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Reasoning is part of the process. 
In fact, having a usable, uh, a usable um, uh, understanding of the rules of logic and an understanding of the typical uh, logical fallacies can be very helpful in persuading people uh, toward the Christian faith. However, those rules of logic are not going to be what is persuasive. Being skillful in the art of debate is a great tool, but it's only a tool. Debate, winning an argument, is not what the Bible says persuades people for the Christian faith. So then we have to ask, well, what is the content of Paul's reasoning? Well, look back at verse um, at verse two in the same chapter, all the way back to chapter seventeen, verse two. Um, as he went into Thessalonica, it said, "Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures." The content of his reasoning was the Scriptures. And this is interesting to me as we talk about this whole issue of apologetics. He was not trying to persuade them that the Scriptures are true. He is assuming that the Scriptures are the Word of God. And I'll say more about this in a moment. But first look uh, back at our text at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And, and, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See that? Paul was proclaiming Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Jesus Christ and the resurrection was the content of his reasoning. Whether he was in the synagogue reasoning with Jews and devout um, and devout Gentiles, or whether he was out in the marketplace reasoning with Epicureans and Stoics. His method, in other words, was the same. Maybe some of his reasoning might have, the order in which he put things might have been a little differently whether he was talking to Jews or philosophers. But the content was the same. Jesus Christ and the resurrection. This is instructive because the Bible never questions its own authority. The Bible assumes that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired, authoritative uh, word of the true and living God. And the apostles who preached uh, the the scriptures uh, to the world of their day took this same approach. They, They proclaimed God's word as God's word without hesitation, without apology, regardless of whether they were preaching to Jews or God-fearing Gentiles, or these philosophers standing in the Areopagus. Do you see where I'm going? I believe this to be the method that we should use in persuading people of the Christian faith today. Being a pastor, people often ask me, how do you know that the Bible is the Word of God? I get that question all the time. And I tell them it's simple. 
I know that the Bible is the Word of God because God tells me it is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse 16, we read it as part of our responsive reading. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is the very breath of God. It is the Word of God. You can imagine the looks when I say that. Some of you are probably giving me those same looks. Uh, But think with me about this for a second. God, being God, has the right to tell us what is right and wrong. He has the right to tell us what is good and bad. He has to tell us he has he has the right to tell us what is just or what is evil. And he can tell us those things without having to justify himself. Similarly, he has the right to tell us that the Bible is the word of God on the sole grounds that he is the author of the Bible. Now, I don't stop there. I don't simply say, well, the Bible is, is God's Word simply because God says it is. But I start there for several reasons. First of all, I start there because, as we've seen, this is where the Bible starts. And if the Bible is going to be our rule, if the Bible is going to be our guide, then we should start where the Bible starts. Secondly, it grabs their attention. Because they're engaged. I can see the look on their face when I say, well, you should believe the Bible because God is God and He says that the Bible is His Word. I can see their mind working because they're working on how they can refute me. Because on the face of it, it seems like they have a pretty easy time ahead of them. It seems like it would be pretty easy to refute that statement by simply telling me, well, you're just using circular reasoning. But that's exactly where I want them. Because I know before the debate even begins that they too are using circular reasoning. And I'm going to hold them to account for doing so. So I want this this issue of circular reasoning out on the table. Right from the beginning, I want it out on the table. Because then I'm going to later in in the debate or in the discussion, I'm going to pick it up again off the table and use it, especially if they are the ones who laid it out on the table. And so I'll go on to explain reasons how, or, or how I came to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I'll explain how the Bible changed my life. I'll explain to them how I met myself when I read the Bible and I found out that I was a sinner that I was completely and utterly undeserving of, the, of, of God's mercy and grace. I also have found that the Bible speaks to me in a way that nothing else in the entire world ever has. It is for me the voice of God speaking into my life. But then... I'll move from those subjective reasons into more objective reasons. For instance, I will tell them how the Bible has one theme from beginning to end. I'll also tell them how the Bible has a unified theology. And the Bible tells us of a unique way of having a relationship with God that no other religion 
um, has ever begun to to offer. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. Even those who do not believe in the Bible's inspiration will grant that the Bible was written certainly over hundreds of years. I mean, you read Genesis, and it was certainly written in a completely different culture, uh, in a very early culture, compared to uh, the Gospel of John or the book of Revelation, which was written later. Um, well after the death of, of Jesus Christ. Um, the Bible consists of 66 books. And those 66 books have many different authors. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of those books. Um, but there are many other different authors. Uh, and there are also, these authors have different personalities, they have different writing styles, and it, as I've already mentioned, they lived uh, clearly in different historical time periods. Yet, in spite of that, there is one unified theology. The God of the book of Genesis is the God of the book of Revelation. And the seeds of the New Testament are clearly seen in the Old Testament. The theology, as the Apostle Paul says, as we, the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians talking about uh, looking back at the Old Testament, it's, it's like we're looking through a glass darkly. It's like we're looking back and we're seeing shadows, but the shadows we are seeing are shadows of the New Testament reality that is coming forward. And the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, speaks of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, The Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the the prophets, the poets, they all spoke of me. And so if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand the Old Testament, read the Gospels of Jesus. And then you'll better be able to understand the Old Testament. And if you want to understand the Gospels, read the letters of Paul and Peter and James. um, Because those letters are theologizing on the life of Jesus. And so you have Jesus... Um, prophesied in the Old Testament. You have Jesus Christ, the person, coming in the New Testament, or in the, in the Gospels. And then, um, in that generation after him, uh, by the apostles. The apostles then were theologizing and writing letters to the churches, giving uh, the content of who Jesus was. Jesus is the center of the Bible. The Old Testament speaks of him as coming as the Messiah, to save the world from their deserved punishment for their sins. And he would also be that Messiah uh, who is coming to punish those who refuse to flee to him for protection. And that's exactly who we find him to be when we meet him on the pages of the New Testament. Listen to this real briefly. and uh, uh, Listen to Psalm 2. 
the Lord said to me, you are my son. This is God talking about uh, giving a prophecy of his son, uh, Jesus Christ. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This was written at least 750 years before Jesus came to earth. And we could look at other passages in the Old Testament. I've even had them uh, listed here in my notes, but we don't have time to look at those. But what is most amazing to me, as I give people uh, objective proof for why I believe the Bible is God's Word, is that the Bible teaches one way of salvation. I ask people all the time how they think they will be, how they'll be saved. And they give me... Uh, a variation um, of the same answer. The, the answer is always wrong. Little variations, but it's, it's a similar but it's, uh, answer, but it's always wrong. And really what they're giving me is the answer that uh, most religions give for how to have a relationship with God. They give me some variation of, well, I'm a good person. I'm sincere. I believe that God exists. Some variation of that sort. But the Bible... From cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, teaches something radically different. No other religion teaches this. The Bible says that we are guilty and undeserving of salvation, but God Himself came here to earth to die for human beings. That's why Jesus Christ came. That's why this cross, not this cross, but the cross, is the center and focal point of our of Christianity. Because God punished Jesus there on the cross in our place. Why would God do this? Because God is a just God. And He cannot simply forgive someone of their sins just because they're sincere or just because they believe in Him. He is a just God and He must punish every sin we've ever committed. But here's the glory of the Gospel. God paid the punishment. He sent Jesus Christ here, the second person of the Trinity, who is God Himself, to die on the cross. And then He paid the eternal punishment that we deserved. But Jesus, being God Himself, was able to pay that punishment in the space of three hours and then go uh, to the grave for three days and that punishment be completely paid. He was the perfect sacrifice of infinite value. And yet, I talk to people, after having 2,000 years of having the Bible, with it being very clearly spelled out in every book of the Bible, the way of salvation, yet people still want to rely on themselves rather than Jesus Christ. Have you fled to Jesus Christ today? The Bible, on its own authority says that He is the only way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. 
So I want to ask you that question. I want to leave you with that question. I've got a lot more to say in this sermon that I'm going to hold off till next week. So if you're here visiting and you want to hear the rest of this argument, don't come to me at the back door for the rest of the sermon. You've got to come back next week. It said here in, in uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 2, Paul went in for three consecutive Sundays into the synagogue to preach his message. So I may make this a three-parter. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we stand and bow our hearts before you because you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And in your great love for us, you have given us a love letter in your word that tells us about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, I pray that on the authority of your word and by the working of your spirit, that you would draw all people here this morning to yourself. And for those who know you, renew our faith in your perfect word. That is our rule for faith and practice. And God, help us more and more to be equipped to um, proclaim Jesus uh, in this culture that um, is just like Athens. Full of superstition, yet materialistic at the heart, all at the same time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.